Shalom and welcome to Think Jewish. And I'd like to dedicate tonight's class in memory of our new friend Daphne's grandmother, Shoshana Bat. Remind me the name, Daphne, please. Shoshana Bat Sara. Okay, her, her grandmother's yard site was the 20th of Tammuz. Okay. This week's uh, class is not really focused on the Torah portion, on the parasha. Why? Because, give you a little bit of history. The previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, he delivered a mimer, a Hasidic discourse for his bar mitzvah when he was 13 years old at the in 1893, okay? It talks about the mitzvah, the commandment of studying Torah, the commandment of the man putting on tefillin, what is the connection between the two, and and why one can interplace uh, interchange with the other. Okay, a tefillin interchanges with uh, stu Torah study, as we'll soon see. Rabbi Shalom Dover Lubavitch also gave a whole bunch of maimarim. He delivered a whole slew of discourses because the bar mitzvah celebration lasted for a week. Okay, now the the um, the previous Rebbe's birthday was on the 12th of Tammuz, and the previous Rebbe's circumcision was therefore on the 19th of Tammuz, right? So, 75 years later, in 1968, on the day of the previous Rebbe's circumcision, the Rebbe delivered one mimer, built on the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe's mimer for that bar mitzvah, and then he delivered on Shabbat another mimer on the discourse based on the previous Rebbe, his father-in-law's discourse from 1893. Now the obvious question is, a bar mitzvah is connected with a birthday, not with a brit milah. So why didn't he deliver the discourse that he wanted to say for the previous Rebbe's 75th anniversary of his bar mitzvah? Why didn't he say it on his birthday? Why did he say it on his brit milah day? There's actually a footnote in the first mimer where the, where the Rebbe explains a very beautiful dynamic. What is the concept of the Bar Mitzvah? The concept of Bar Mitzvah is defined in the verse, and you shall strengthen yourself and be a man. What does that mean? What that means on a Kabbalistic level is that on your Bar Mitzvah, your godly soul completely enters into your body. Now that is for a male. For a girl, it's a bas mitzvah. Interesting enough, I quote to you the words of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rav Shnei Zaman of Liadi, and he says that the godly soul begins to enter into your body by your brit milah for a boy. Which means that the bar mitzvah, in a sense, is the completion of the brit milah. And therefore, being that the focus over here is on the person accepting his godly soul and the godly soul having an effect on his animalistic soul and transforming his life, therefore, the bar mitzvah day, interesting enough, from this perspective, has more connection with the brit milah than it does the, with the birthday. Interesting concept. Okay? So, anyway... Both these discourses of the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe and of the Rebbe and of the of the sixth Lubavitch Rebbe, the father and the bar mitzvah boy, are very deep Kabbalistic um, teachings. It talks about the primordial light, the three levels of the primordial light, why we why there was creation, so forth and so on. Okay. Nevertheless, we're going to focus on the Rebbe's teaching and the Rebbe's twist and understanding of these concepts. However, before we do that, we're going to first have to understand a major point of the previous Rebbe's Mimer in 1893. Okay? We'll get that clear. We'll get to the point that we want to understand. And from there, we'll launch into the Rebbe's Mimer of 1968. Okay? Very interesting. And the practicality in how we transform our life really becomes crystal clear and very beautiful at the end of this, this lecture, okay? So, let's start. The previous Rebbe, by the way, I just want you to know, 
parenthetically speaking. This mime of the previous Rebbe is actually very precious to every Lubavitcher. Why? Because when we become Bar Mitzvah, when we turn 13 years old, upon the Rebbe's directive, we actually study by heart and deliver the previous Rebbe's Bar Mitzvah Mimer as our Bar Mitzvah Mimer. So this actually becomes the first Hasidic teaching that we actually commit to memory and then later as a big boy, a big Hasid, everyone sings a special song and we deliver that publicly by our Bar Mitzvah. So this is a very precious Mimer and to see what the Rebbe does with it is just phenomenal. So let's start. The Mimer begins with a teaching, a Midrashic teaching. What's the Midrashic teaching? It says as follows. The Jewish people complained to God. I'm actually quoting to you. The Jewish people complained to God saying, Master of the universe, we would like to study Torah day and night, but we are preoccupied with the necessities of life. Right? We turn to Hashem. We would love to, but we just can't. The Holy One, blessed be He, answers, Wrap on the tefillin once a day, and I will consider this as though you were studying Torah day and night. So this is a teaching from the great Rabbi Eliezer, and it's quoted and explained in the Medrash. It's, it's taught in the Medrash. So let's go over what's going on here, okay? We're telling God, we know that God commanded us, what's the verse say? We have to study Torah by day and by night. That's our job. That's our primary job as Jews to study Torah, and we'll soon see why, okay? But because we can't, so we tell God we would love to, but there's bills to pay. There's stuff to do. We have necessities of life. Hashem, the Almighty, accepts what we're saying and says, okay, so I'll tell you what. Put on the tefillin once a day, right? Now you understand why this is a bar mitzvah mimer. That's when we start putting on tefillin. Put on tefillin once a day, and I will consider it as though you study Torah day and night. Okay? So obviously we have to understand, number one, what is the interrelationship between Torah study and tefillin? That God is telling us that if you can't study Torah, put on tefillin, and it will be considered as though. Okay? The answer to why, what the deep connection between studying Torah and putting on tefillin is understood by understanding what the deeper spiritual accomplishment of Torah study and putting on tefillin is. Okay? So, in a nutshell, what it is is, and that was the title of tonight's class, God's magnifying, class, uh, magnifying glass becoming big in the eyes of God, so to speak. So let's understand. What happens is that studying Torah and putting on tefillin both have the same spiritual effect that it places us under a magnifying glass where suddenly we become big, so to speak, in God's eyes. That's what the explanation is. Now, now let's understand the explanation. The explanation is as follows. The entire world, we need to understand a little bit about the world's creation and what Torah study is. The world was created in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Previously, if you remember, just recently I quoted to you the teaching of the Zohar that when the verse says in six days he created the world and on the seventh day he rested, what does the Zohar explain? These six days are the six emotion emanations. Now, I want to just, it, it's, it's the class is going to go on for a while. It's a full class. But I want to just slow down to explain things, okay? So we might go a little bit over time. Forgive me. What does it mean the world was created in six emotion emanations? We, we've been saying this lately, right? The emotions, the intellects, yada, yada. So I just want to explain what it means on the most simplest level. Light, light in itself is, has no color, right? And when you shine it through a stained glass window, what happens? Light picks up the color of the stained glass. When the light shines through red glass, it becomes red light, so forth and so on. So from the creator's perspective, from the shiner of the light, the source of light, there is no 
finite dimensions. Everything is infinite and colorless. However, he created, so to speak, a transformer so that the infinite light can now deal with finite creation. Understand this as God, so to speak, shining his infinite light through a stained glass window. And thus, all, for, all of a sudden, that which has no form, no likeness, no image, no definition, all of a sudden could be perceived through definition. So to speak, on Sunday, God shined through the stained glass window called chesed, kindness, and what was created on that day? The revelation of light. On the second day, so to speak, God shined through the stained glass window of strictness, justice, boundaries. And what happens? God separated the waters, drew boundaries between heaven and earth. And this goes on and on. And then on Shabbat, God shined through the feminine mystique called kingship. And thus Shabbat became the day of regality. Okay? So we talk about the world being created through the seven emotions. The first six emotions are called what? Small faces. We're dealing of a lower level. Even the seventh one is called what? Kingship is called what? It is referred to as the moon. The feminine mystique is the moon. Why? Because the moon, so to speak, is little. Remember what God told the moon? God told the moon, make yourself small. And that represented itself by the moon not having any of its own light, but reflecting a greater light. Thus we speak of the emotions as the lower dimension of this transformer. Okay? So creation comes from the lower dimension. Thus you now understand when I said magnifying glass, because creation on itself is small. It comes from the seven lower emanations, the emotions, which are called the small faces or the lightless moon. Okay? Then we have another teaching. We mentioned this teaching previously too. What does it say? Our sages tell us that the Torah preceded creation, the world, by 2,000 years. The great Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the great Kabbalist from Tzfat, he teaches us that the word thousand, Eleph, also comes from the word Alefcha, teacher, I will teach you. And thus he explains that the two thousands is the two great illuminary emanations of what? Of wisdom and of understanding. Thus the Torah, which preceded, what does the word precede mean? We're not talking about here time just. We're talking about in greatness. So what is the concept of the Torah? Wisdom and understanding, which is the higher dimension. We have a number system, right? In the number system, you have the different numbers that represent different greatnesses. We talk about a thousand. That is a full great paradigm. So the higher realm of Torah, which is wisdom and understanding. Now let's talk about what Torah study is. What is Torah study? Torah study is the small creature of the lower emotion emanations studying Torah drawing in what the higher emanations of wisdom and understanding thus you understand for creatures of emotion to study Torah is to be seen through the magnifying glass of the higher intellects so when the creatures of the lower emotion the small faces absorb the higher dimension of Torah, wisdom, understanding, intellectual emanations, what happens? We become, so to speak, big in God's eyes. When we stand in our own, on the level of emotion, creatures of the lower transformer system, the lower seven emotions were referred to as small faces. When we study Torah, and we open up and draw down into our being. The human mind, the human mind, the creature of emotions, is studying and diligently studying and struggling hard to understand the words of Torah, which is what? The higher emanations of intellect. Thus, studying Torah is a magnifying glass 
for us. Okay? Let's talk about tefillin for a moment. What does tefillin do? Tefillin, so to speak, does the same thing. Because the four, the four, uh, the tefillin has two pieces. One on the head and one on the arm, the weaker arm. When we talk about the one on the head, it is made up of four compartments. We have a three-letter shin on one side, a four-letter shin on the other side. According to Kabbalah, this talks about the realm of intellect, the higher intellects. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge on one side. On the other side, the knowledge already is split into nurturing the two main emotions of strictness, of kindness and strictness. But here's the kicker. According to Kabbalah, the whole point of putting on the headpiece of tefillin is not just to have the headpiece on the head, but more importantly, it should be connected. I shouldn't say more importantly, but it has to have the straps which come down below the chest. What does this represent in Kabbalah? Drawing the intellects into the emotions. Once again, we have the same concept. The chest is the house of the emotions. Having the headpiece, the greatness, the protruding on top of the head, that high emanations, the intellectual emanations, should be drawn down into the chest. Now take it also on the second level. A second way of explaining this is, and they're not, uh, they're not uh, mutually exclusive, is that the headpiece has to be drawn down into the handpiece. The handpiece is against the heart. It's the emotion. The handpiece itself, by the way, parenthetically speaking, has to come down to the hand and the fingers because the emotions must express itself in the way we live, our actions. But for tonight, we're not focusing on the leather strap of the handpiece. We're focusing primarily on the headpiece drawing down into the chest straps or also into the handpiece. Thus, you understand here that the mitzvah of tefillin is doing the exact same thing on a lower level. We're going to get to this very soon. But the tefillin is doing what the headpiece does. Because the minute the creatures of the lower, smaller faces, which is the emotion emanations, are opening up to receive the paradigm of the higher intellect emotions, that is the magnifying glass where we're no more just a small creation of emotions. Rather, we have opened ourselves up to the unbelievable paradigm of the spiritual divine. Okay? So far, so good? <laughs> Raise your hands if you didn't fall off the bus. Okay. It gets deeper, and then it comes down. <laughs> so bear with me, okay? <sighs> the last introduction. So we gave the introduction of the previous Rebbe's Mimer, the concept of being small creatures of emotion emanations, and through Torah study and tefillin, we open ourselves up to be seen and experienced through the paradigm of the higher intellectual emanations. Okay? Now let's get to the Rebbe's Mimer. So I want to just introduce an introduction of what the Rebbe asks, the questions, and then we can go further, okay? And it is going to get a little deeper, but bear with me, okay? So let's go over this teaching. Let's start with going over the teaching of the Medrash. What does the Medrash say? In the name of Rabbi Eliezer, the Jewish people complained to God saying, Master of the universe, we would like to study Torah, day and night, but we are preoccupied with the necessities of life. The Holy One, blessed be, answered, wrap on the tefillin once a day, and I will consider this as though you were studying Torah day and night. Here the Rebbe's approach. The Rebbe's going to get as mystical as you can get, but here the Rebbe's practical approach. Question number one. If there is a commandment from God that you shall study Torah day and night, what does that mean? We would love to, but we're preoccupied. If God commanded you to do it, don't come back to God and say, I'm preoccupied. You got to do it. You got to study Torah day and night. I, necessities of life, either put your faith in the God who provided manna for the Jews in the desert or find some type of sustenance that you don't have to be there time-wise. 
But if God tells you that you must study Torah day and night, don't tell him that it's impossible. We would love to, Hashem. Sorry. Thus, you must say that when the Jewish people, because remember, God accepted what we said and gave us an answer, right? So, we must say that when the Jewish people said we're preoccupied, it's because the Torah accepts that we are preoccupied. By the way, so is the case. And therefore, in Jewish law, in Shulchan Aruch, we say that what does it mean to study Torah day and night? It means that you wake up early in the morning before you go to work, daytime, and you study Torah. And then when you come home, in between the mincha services and then the night services or post-night services, you again study a chapter of Torah so you, can be, you fulfill the commandment of studying day and night. That means the Jewish law, the Torah itself, who told us you shall study day and night, accepts that while it would be grand to study Torah literally day and night, but nevertheless, the necessities of life, the Torah accepts it. So much so, the code of Jewish law redefines what the commandment is. Study a chapter of Torah in the day and study a chapter of Torah at night. Okay? Comes question number two. If the code of Jewish law tells us that, no, I understand that you're preoccupied. So much so that you know that what does the ethics of our father say? He who studies Torah without earning a living. The Torah will not sustain. You can't study Torah. You got to pay your bills. So why are we telling God? Oh, we would love to. God told us, according to the answer, no. You got to earn a living. So why would the Jews saying, I know that you said that we have to earn a living and just study in the morning and at night. But if only we would be able to. What kind of conversation is that with God? A third, a third question. What does it mean as though? If you put on tefillin once a day, I will consider it as though. So I wanted to share with you in Kabbalah what that one Hebrew word, ki'ilu, which means as though, what it means. What it means is that it is not the same. What this means is that Torah study accomplishes what accomplishes on the highest level. Being that you can't do that, thus I'm telling you, do the lower level, accomplish it on a lower level by putting on tefillin. So even though the previous Rebbe explained that they both accomplish the same thing, drawing the greater, higher, primordial before creation, 2,000 years before. That great intellect emanations, that's the real way to go. But if you put on tefillin, I'll consider it as though. What does it mean as though? You're not going to get what you could have gotten by Torah study, but you will get the same concept on a lower level. As though. We need to understand this. Why is it so? Okay. <laughs> now you need to tighten your seatbelts. <laughs> Let's understand the power of Torah in seeing how Torah study fulfills the purpose of creation. God created the world, not stam, not okay, let's create a world. There was a purpose why God created the world. And what is that purpose? God created the world so that he can experience essence pleasure. The ultimate essence pleasure. Okay? Now, in order for this essence pleasure to exist, God would first have to create a finite nether world of a physical upside down. Now, maybe we should say downside up because that's the whole point of creation. We have the worm's eye view. We're looking up. However, understand that that paradigm that we're looking up is the greatest upside down paradigm you can ever have. Because what happens is in the finite nether physical realm, 
we don't have it is hidden it is oblique the absolute rather what we live with is in the realm of relativity you understand that God is absolute and thus when we live in the realm of relativity we are living an upside down life that's why we call ourselves something from nothing because we cannot really understand that so we call it nothing while we refer to ourselves as something which is absolutely upside down to call God nothing and us something however because we are blocked from the paradigm of the absolute and we live in the world of relativity where the human mind can only really truly grasp the human study of human science thus you understand we're living in a nether finite physical realm which is blinded to the truth of the absolute our understanding of the boundaries of nature the laws of nature the cause and effect of nature is all from the true spiritual divine bird's eye view it's all upside down so God created first this scenario which kind of leaves us in a total blind deaf and so to speak dumb paradigm in comparison to the absolute truth what's so special here to understand what's so special and what the essence pleasure is why would God have an essence pleasure of creating such a mess and the answer is that this uh, it's a metaphor given in the teachings of Chassidus he talks about the great king the great king by definition great not because he's a dictator but because as God says the Torah says about Samuel the prophet he was a head and shoulders above everyone else truly on a different league of reality intellect and emotions interesting enough we find that this king this unbelievable king will receive pleasure from the talking parrot more than it will receive pleasure from a very intellectual conversation with his top advisors why why this parrot this talking parrot has absolutely no understanding of what it's babbling this king who is truly intellectual his IQ and his EQ is superior he can be sitting and talking with his advisors of the most refined abstract concepts true emotional experiences and what does he receive his essence pleasure from he receives his essence pleasure from a talking parrot why to understand this we need to understand that essence pleasure is created in the novelty and novelty usually is the amazing existence of a paradox a bird talking is a novelty it's a paradox the greatest thoughts of his brilliant advisors while they're beautiful it's not a novelty now let's get to what we're talking about let's talk about God now so when the celestial spiritual sublime angels shower praise upon God that's not a novelty they clearly grasp what they're saying and why it's so applicable to God while when the human being wakes up a half hour earlier runs to shul races putting on his towels and tefillin showering words of praise to God that he really does not grasp that is a novelty that is a talking parrot for the person for the human physical human being who lives within the upside down paradigm of the human laws of nature for him to understand that I must wake up early before I go to work I need to pray because it's the blessing of God that brings me 
Parnassa sustenance. Not my uh, great understanding of Wall Street and the market and all the business laws. That is a paradox because ultimately speaking, this human parrot cannot truly understand that. Just as the absolute truth is denied to the creature of relativity. Thus we understand in the greater picture, God created the world to experience the essence pleasure of novelty. That the finite human being, the finite world, with a very clear understanding of what we call conventional wisdom, scientific theories sometimes called facts. For us to be able to live in this realm of reality where pay your bills or end up, God forbid, homeless, for such, a par for such an environment to be able to open themselves up and to live according to the bird's eye view, according to the laws of the Torah, for the human mind to engage with divine wisdom until we can create what we call think Jewish. That is a novelty. That is a paradox. And therefore, this is the essence pleasure of God. And thus God enjoys our prayer, which is considered blind, deaf, and dumb, compared to the angel's prayer. He enjoys our prayer. We create the essence pleasure, the novelty, the true experience of serving God, far greater than all the celestial, great, divine, spiritual beings. And how do we do this? We do this by studying Torah, taking the human mind, taking, you know that Torah has a law for every single object and every single experience. Torah, you know, governs how we eat. Torah governs how we dress. Torah even governs, forgive me, how we have to behave in a restroom. There's laws. Believe it or not, there is laws in the Shulchan Aruch. Every single object in the Torah will be defined as obligatory, permissible, or prohibitive. So you understand that when we accept to live the life of Torah, and how are we going to know all of this? We're going to know all of this through studying the Torah. That is the ultimate, that ultimate transformation of a parrot talking of a physical Jew living in the physical frustration and difficulty, environment and system, necessities, preoccupied by the necessities of physical life. For us to be able to live a Torah life, that is the ultimate fulfillment of the purpose of creation, which was to give God the novelty now you understand why we talk so much over here about freedom of choice. Because that's what makes it a novelty. Not only do we have freedom of choice to do divine or not, but to tr totally transform. Because we genetically are not programmed to live according to the Torah. And thus, as physical human beings, we're not physically, genetically programmed. I'm not talking about the godly soul. And thus for us to open ourselves up, study Torah, change our paradigm, live a Torah life. This is the ultimate essence pleasure for God. When the angels do it, by the way, again parenthetically speaking, because I just want to be clear. Have you ever heard of the argument Moses had with the angels when he was on Mount Sinai? What did the angels say? God, the Torah, the perfect, beautiful, spiritual Torah you're giving to them? They're going to mess it up. They're going to sin right, left, and center. They're programmed to sin. God told Moses, answer them. Moses says he's afraid. So God said, hold on to my throne and answer them. What did Moses answer them? Moses' answers were amazing. 
Do you have a father and mother that you have to struggle with honor your father and mother? Do you ever go to Egypt that you have to experience breaking out of an Egypt? What was he saying? What he's saying is that you people don't have a paradox. You people don't have novelty. The Torah is here to give essence pleasure to God. You can't do that. You can't do that because of your greatness, because of your spirituality. And thus the Torah has to go down. Because that's where essence pleasure can be created for God. So we now understand how the Torah is the ultimate transformation. We're not just talking about a magnifying glass, which, you know, we're talking about far deeper than that from what the Rebbe is telling us. We're talking about becoming the essence pleasure of God, the cherished center of creation. Torah study is the power to do it. Not in my notes, but in the Rebbe's Mimer. You all remember the teaching on the first word of the Torah? What's the first word of the Torah? Bereshit, in the beginning. What does our sages say? Divide the word, bet, reshit. Two primordial beginnings. Ultimate resh, rush, the head. And who are they? The Torah and the Jewish people. What does the verse say? Bereshit, bara elokim et v'taaretz. For these two reshits, and only for these two reshits, did God create heaven and earth. What does that mean? That God created the whole heaven and earth so that the physical Jew can study Torah and live Torah, thus creating the paradox, the novelty. This is the purpose of creation, to give God essence pleasure. Okay? Let's go further. Before we're going to go to the tefillin aspect of this, I want to just take it a little bit deeper with the Torah. The Torah, and so too, by the way, when I spoke about the talking parrot, I just want you to know, keeping in mind what I spoke about, the intellects and the emotions, you understand that the emotions compared to the intellect is considered a parrot. Babbling. Emotions babble, right? What's that famous uh, meme, M-E-M-E? Oh, I forgot how you pronounce it. Meme? Mime? How, what's the famous mime that they put out there? A picture of a heart and a picture of the brain and the brain telling the heart, you always make such a fool out of me. Because that's what it is. The, the heart is, is like a parrot compared to the mind, which will represent the human. So for the parrot, the emotions to open itself up, to be subdued, directed, and transformed by the mind, is once again that novelty and paradox of a talking parrot. Okay? Let's go further. In Torah and in the intellect emanations, there are two levels. Let's talk about these two levels. The lower level of the Torah and of intellect is all about expressing itself in an emotion. Let me explain what I'm saying. Okay? The intellectual thought, the intellectual grasp is not complete until it gives birth and expresses an appropriate emotion. When I truly understand something, the completion of my internalizing, grasping, truly understanding is when it creates an emotion of Love and attraction, or fear and awe, or distaste and disconnection. So when I understand something, it's either that it's good and lovable, it's either that it's omnipotent and awe, or it's something that, ew, that's not what I want in my life. So the completion of an intellect is its emotional expression. To just remain in an abstract is not good because at the end of the day, an intellectual understanding must always answer the following question, and therefore, you'll always have that question. This isn't about just playing, hop-plopping, fantasizing, no. If it's a true intellectual understanding, 
then it needs to say, and therefore, dot, dot, dot. That and therefore is an emotional experience, an emotional expression of the intellect. So too with the Torah. The Torah, by very definition of the word Torah, what does the word Torah mean? It actually means direction, to give direction, to give a lesson. Thus, every Torah teaching is all about what? It's all about the direction of how we should behave. Anything we do or don't do is ultimately experienced how? In our emotions, right? We mentioned that many times. Every salesperson knows. You can give intellectual figures from today to the moon. If you don't connect an, an emotional connection, you're not closing the sale. So thus the Torah too is all about bringing the study into the therefore. So to the intellect, always into the emotion. So what I'm telling you here is that on one hand, the intellect, while greater than the emotion, does have to find a communication and a relationship with the emotion. That's the lower level of intellect, the lower level of Torah. Now I want to share with you the higher level of Torah. And I'm going to read to you a verse, okay? The verse was said by King Solomon in Proverbs about the Torah. And this is what it says. I was a nursling. I want to just point out that the word nursling in Hebrew is umen. I'm going to explain it soon. Besides him, beside him, him with a capital H. So the Torah is saying, I was a nursling beside him, God. And I was his, capital H, delight every day. Playing before him, capital H, at all times. What does that mean? That means, according to the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, that Torah, in its true essence, in its highest form, exists within what the verse says. No eye other than yours has seen it. That means that there's a level of Torah which was not revealed at all into creation, neither spiritual nor physical. It is only God's personal nursling, God's personal delight, God's personal playtime. Thus we're talking about the essence of Torah is God experiencing within himself the greatness of Torah. You understand that this level of Torah has zero communication and relationship with the world. Let's do it again. We have two levels of the Torah. There's the Torah the way it has to express itself in a direction, a directive, a lesson. And then there's the Torah where it is far beyond any relationship at all with creation. From the highest point A to the lowest point Z, zero connection with creation. For the essence of Torah is not something God wrote for us yet it exists within God as his own personal delight. So we have these two dimensions, okay? And the same exists within intellect. Nevertheless, here's a very interesting thing. You remember I pointed out to you that the word for um, nursling is uman? Very interesting. You know what the word uman means in Hebrew also? Besides nursling, it also means a workman. It's very interesting teaching in the Medrash on Genesis. And it says that the Torah boasts that I was the uman, I was the work tool of God. What does this mean, work tool? means I, the Torah, am the work tool of God. In other words, that means that even this high level, which is called nursling, ultimately expresses its essence in being a work tool into creation. That means even the highest essence, okay, has to express itself. It's called uman, double play of words. Nursling, disconnected, totally one with God, 
and on the other hand the work tool with which God created the world. I know this is Kabbalistic so let's get practical. <sighs> I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, we, we talk as if the Torah is talking. That's what the teaching is telling us, okay? Now, <sighs> let's take a deeper look into what this Uman essence of the Torah is. How does it reflect with us? I, I know, it's getting deeper and deeper. Just hold on, just stay with me, okay? <laughs> stay awake and I promise you a safe landing. <laughs> What's going on here? Here is an interesting thing. I'm I'm going to read this to you because I want you to understand this, okay? This is something I'm going to repeat twice because this is the core issue of tonight's class, okay? The inner essence of the Torah being infinitely greater and beyond creation causes that even the outer dimension of the Torah which does communicate and relate with creation should only do so in a dominant a loafed fashion of it be preceding the world. I want to point out what's going on here. We said that the Torah precedes the world, right? Above and beyond. Nuh-uh. We didn't say it's above and beyond. We gave it a definition, a relative definition of 2,000 years preceding. Make up your mind. Is it above and beyond or is it 2,000 years? Thus the answer here is something very beautiful. We're talking about the lower dimension of Torah. But because the inner essence of the Torah is absolutely above and beyond, therefore it causes that even in the layer of the Torah which does connect to the world, only connects by dominance and by aloofness. Let me go over this again. This is very important to understand. Okay? There are two ways we can relate to each other, right? I can relate to you as, I'm the rabbi. I'm above and beyond you. And I'm going to just dominate and tell you, no, Mark, you may not do this. Mark, you have to do this. Right? My relationship with you is what? One of dom dominance and aloofness. It's important to understand that because the essence of the Torah is so truly above and beyond you can't even say the word preceding because the Torah, the, uh, compared to the essence of the Torah, where it's the personal plaything of God, creation doesn't even exist. It's a non-entity. It's standing within the essence of God. What is creation? An offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of a ray, of a finite ray of God's light. What does one have to do with the other? This is with the, the light within the essence of God. And this is what? Shred it down to... Thus, because on the true essence level of the Torah, on the true Uman essence level of the Torah, the delight, the nursling, the Torah is so above and beyond, thus it has an impact on the lower level of the Torah that even when it does communicate, it only communicates as absolute blue blood. Dominance and aloft. This is a very important factor to understand here, okay? Now, I want to share with you what we have here. From this one thing that I just shared with you, I want to share with you what we have here. We have two major outcomes. No, number one, the Torah is a loafed and dominates creation, being an absolute power over creation. Dominates. It completely controls the genetics of creation. Number two, because the Torah is all about being the working tool, it's all about transforming the world, thus the Torah accepts the existence and the finite capacity of the world. Okay? In plain, simple language, if I'm a loaf from you and I'm going to dominate you, I obviously am going to take, accept, and embraced your finite capacities. Right? That's what the dominance is. I'm greater than you. I'm just going to tell you how it is. I'm going to completely impose myself upon you and transform you. But ultimately speaking, I can't cause the system 
to have a short and go haywire because it's all about you. Thus, I need to completely embrace your limitations. Let me tell you what this means to us. We're getting there. What this means to us is, number one, that the Torah rules the world from a loaf in a spiritual dimension of the sublime world, divine world of godliness called Atzilut. Let me tell you what that means. Because the Torah is true blue blood, right? What it means by true blue blood, the Torah compared to the world, right? So when we say that the Torah is true blue blood, it means it's not mixing with you and me. So where does the Torah exist? The Torah actually exists in its spiritual source. That means when you and I are studying Torah right now, do you know what we're doing? In the godly spiritual world of Atzilut, that sublime, unbelievable realm of true consciousness, that spiritual world all of a sudden starts digesting such great infinite light. Now what happens by that is that from the world of Atzilut, it gets processed through the system and genetically changes the physical world. Because that's the system. The system is that divinity goes into the godly world of Atzilut. It's processed, processed and digested by these angels, later given over to the other angels, finally processed to the 70 ministers that control the world. Control the world, God controls the world. But I mean that they're the hammer in the, in the hand of the carpenter and that changes the physical world. It literally changes the genetics of the physical world. That's number one. Let me tell you the second thing. Because the Torah accepts the, and respects the physical human in the physical world has its limitations of being preoccupied with the necessities of life. Thus, even though Torah study is the ultimate experience because we're dealing with the essence delight, driving the lower level of Torah, which is all about directives. Nevertheless, because the Torah is embracing the world, because it's here to transform the world, it accepts that the world has this preoccupation with fulfilling the necessities of life. You follow the two paradox things here? On one hand, the Torah is so great and infinite, but because the Torah is all about directives, transforming the world, right? The 2,000 years preceding the world, it's going to, through dominance and aloofness, it's going to genetically transform this world. But to do that, it has to embrace the world. And how does it embrace the world? By accepting its capacity. And thus the Torah says, I get it, I get it. I know that I told you to learn the Torah day and night. And yes, in the spiritual level, I meant day and night. But to you, what I mean is one chapter in the morning, go to work, eat, rest, come back home, and another chapter at night. Thus, it embraces this complaint that the Jews had to God. We would love to, but we're preoccupied. Okay? We're almost there. The power of tefillin. Our last stop before we make it practical. So we spoke about Torah. We spoke about Torah being all about bringing it down, right? Bringing down what? We spoke about the Torah being the essence, the delight of God. That driving the lower level to never see with the world eye to eye, but always be the blue blood dominance. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to transform you. And yet, nevertheless, because it's all about transforming the world, it embraces the capacity of the world. And sometimes Torah accepts that the world is preoccupied. And therefore, we got to do it the world's way. Okay? Even though through dominance, even through aloofness, but we got to do it the world's way. It's got to be a chapter in the morning, a chapter at night, because these people have to eat, sleep, drink, and walk and work. Okay? Now let's go to the tefillin. Here's a surprise for you people. The job of tefillin is not to transform the world. The job of tefillin is to transform the human being. Okay? 
That is why we call the mitzvah of tefillin the lower union in comparison to Torah study, which is the higher union. Okay? What does that mean? I want to share with you what this means. What it means is that the tefillin on one hand has two aspects. On one hand, the tefillin is only the lower union. It's dealing with the human intellectual and emotional capacity. On the other hand, because it's not here to change the world, it doesn't need to embrace the world's capacity of being preoccupied. So let me tell you how this works. How this works is that putting on tefillin helps me change. When I change, I change my environment. Thus, the tefillin's impact on the world is not to deal with the world. The, world, the job of tefillin is to make a mensch out of me. It's for me to understand that I need to dedicate my heart, my mind to God. I need to live within my greatest understanding of the oneness of Hashem Echad. And my understanding of Hashem Echad is, ultimately speaking, the lower union. Remember we said before, we cannot embrace, truly embrace, the higher union. Yes, you and I love saying, God is everything and everything is God. But you and I do not eat that. We don't digest it. It's an abstract thought. And thus the, the change of the human capacity is on a lower level. As though. Follow now? As though. But, but, the tefillin has a beauty to it too. In one aspect, it gets to where the world can't. The Torah can't. Because Torah study has to embrace that the world sometimes is preoccupied. But when the tefillin is here to work on the soul, the mind and heart of the Jew. The mind of a heart of a Jew is never preoccupied. Remember what the verse says? You shall live off the work of your hands, not your head and your heart. Your head and your heart's got to be in higher dimensions. Thus, the tefillin is on the lower level, but the tefillin is working with you. And because it works with you, it's not blocked by the preoccupation of the world's finite capacity. Now we understand the whole conversation between God and the Jewish people, the Jewish people and God. We're telling God, God, we understand that the Torah, that is the ultimate delight. That's the nursling. That's your private plaything. That's what we want to do. We want to transform the world on its genetic level. We want it to completely dominate and transform. We don't want to settle for the lower union. We really want to experience and cry out, Hashem Echad, the higher union. You are everything and everything is at you. And God tells the Jewish people, when you come across the limitations that I created you with, when you come across being preoccupied, don't get lost. Just shift. Downshift. You know when you're going up a mountain? You have to downshift. Downshift to the lower union. Downshift to transforming yourself. And through yourself, you'll transform your environment. Thus, this whole teaching is so beautiful now. We, of course, are crying out, what? Lower union. We want to live with you, God. Hashem Echad. But we can't. We come across preoccupations. How am I supposed to live with God as one and one as God when there's foreclosure, when there's this stuff being shut off, when I'm dealing with health issues? I can't go to CVS and tell them, God is one. It doesn't work. So God says, then, I get it. Downshift. Go to the lower union. Digest what you could digest. Because on that level, there's no preoccupation. That's the mystical journey. Now we need to ask the big question. 
all these beautiful mystical teachings, what difference will it make in my practical life? Time for a landing. I've told you people, I've shared with you people again and again, Chabad does not want you floating out of our classes. We want you walking out of our classes. My teacher used to say, head in the sky, feet on the ground. If that doesn't happen, it's not life. So let's talk about, we just had our head in the sky. Let's put our feet down on the ground. Let's talk about this. The first thing we learn from this teaching is a very interesting teaching, practical teaching, okay? And I want to preface this with a question. How many times did you read news about the Middle East, about something going on in Turkey, about genocide going on in Africa, and you ask yourself one simple question, what can I do about this? I'm not a world power. I have no influence. What can I do? I want to share with you that a person once asked the Rebbe about a specific Jewish cause. Asked the Rebbe, what is the Rebbe's involvement in this specific Jewish cause? I know what the Jewish cause was, and the Rebbe explained previously why the Rebbe will not have a direct influence. It had to do with Russian Jewry and for the Rebbe to come out with strong, um, strong uh, demonstrations would only harm everyone who was known in Russia as Schneerson's boys. So the Rebbe could not, for the sake of the Jewish people there, could not go ahead and do that. However, he asked the Rebbe, what's your involvement? The Rebbe wasn't going to share with him that he has boys going there and everything. The Rebbe gave a very interesting answer and a very deep answer. And now tonight, for the first time, you and I can appreciate it. The Rebbe said sometimes a Jew's involvement in a Jewish cause is by him sitting in his office and truly digging into deep Torah study. Now you and I, we struggle with that. Nah, that means spiritual. Come on, you got to make a difference. Right? With a tar, what's the what's word with the, here, where the uh, wheel hits the pavement, the tar hits the pavement? No. We just learned something. We just learned something real. We need to believe in it, we need to accept it, and we need to embrace it. Sometimes when you hear of a global problem, of a Middle East problem, sometimes what you need to do immediately is say, I got to change the genetics of this world. And I'm going to do that by really sitting down and spending a half hour uninterrupted, phone shut off, computer out of the way, and study Torah. Because when I study Torah, I bring a whole different divine paradigm into Atzilut, which dominates and reorganizes the genetics of global consciousness. So sometimes the answer to what you and I can do is study Torah. Make it a real change from a very different point of view. Number one. Number two. By the way, when we study Torah, let's just be clear what we're saying. When we study Torah, we transform this jungle. You'd, admit, you'd, you'd agree with me that we have a jungle out there today? When you study Torah really study Torah, you're transforming the genetics of this jungle to become the ultimate garden of God's essence pleasure. That's what this is all about. I want to share with you a second practical lesson of how we transform our lives. We have to transform our life. That's what it's all about, right? We're all born with the worm's eye perspective, right? What did the spies say? And we were like grasshoppers in their eyes and so we were in our own eyes. That's what we're born with. We're needy. We're the only creature that really are helpless for the longest period of time. That's what we have. So I want to share with you. There is two tools that God gave us how to transform our life. Tool number one is to really digest that I am a spiritual being having human experiences. Isn't that what Torah study is all about according to what we said today? Sometimes if you really want to transform your life, you got to 
metamorph. You've got to get out of that shell. You've got to stop seeing yourself as a finite, troublesome human being who's trying to have godly experiences. No. We've got to take the bird's eye view. We've got to take the dominant, aloof view. We need to understand that we are spiritual beings having human experiences. And let me tell you what that means in the very practical level, because I'm not here running a meditation group. What that means, practically speaking, is that we change the genetics of our brain. And here goes a quote, not mine. Stop telling God how big your problems are and start telling your problems how big God is. That is the transformation of Torah study. That is the transformation of where I truly live within the deepest inner essence of who I am. I am a godly being. Sometimes that hits a wall. Sometimes we deal with the preoccupied. Sometimes we kind of lose that grasp. And what does God tell us? Tool number two, downshift. Time to go inwards. Time to go within yourself and transform your inner self. That's the tefillin part. It's time to start lower down. Stop living for a moment with the high union. I am a spiritual being having human experiences. Sometimes we get the wind knocked out of us. We come to the preoccupied state. And then God tells us, slow down, Yingala. Go into the lower union. Turn into yourself. Time to start transforming your own mind, your own heart on a lower level, but on a digestible level. And from there, you'll make a difference in your environment. People, thank you.